Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attention, attention, which is, of course, my rotten Spanish for Achtung, Achtung. I'm going to get corrected in a second. Don't panic. (laughs) Well, no, no, but you know what? But Willow, my my, uh, A-level teen, she did GCSE Spanish. And every time I tried to do, like, you know, hilarious Spanish, she'd go, no, you got your pronunciation all wrong. You got it wrong. Because I think I'd watched too much Narcos and I was doing a bad impression of, um, of, uh, of what's his name, you know, the drug baron. Anyway, um, plata o plomo. Anyway, um, uh, uh, welcome, one and all, to We Have Ways of Making You Talk live stream. Monday night is the new Thursday, of course. We're yeah. making the weekend longer, aren't we, with a postscript <laughs> rather than uh, a preview. Uh, James Holland reporting for duty, of course. You're right, yeah, Jim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm all right. I felt, I, felt a bit, I felt a bit sort of, I don't know. I've, I've been flagging today. I'm not going to lie, a little bit. Really? So you've yeah. really brought your Ren, your friendly Ren along to perk yeah, you up. I thought she needed to perk me up a little bit. <laughs> and we have a very special guest. We can't leave you sitting there forever, Sean. Uh, Listening to our inane banter, we have a very special guest this evening. Sean Scullion is with us, and Sean is a Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Engineers, currently serving in Naples, where he works for NATO. But that is not why Sean has joined us this evening. Sean's here because he was brought up in Spain under the dictate uh, uh, in Franco's Spain and Sean is a historian specializing in the Spanish Civil War and currently researching the role of Spaniards who volunteered and fought the British Army in the Second World War. Welcome Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks Sal, yes, uh, 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 you know, a really important story for me, it's kind of part of my life um, and uh, yeah I mean it's great to be here and uh, hopefully uh, we can get a bit more of the information out there and, and you know do right for these these Spaniards who you know really did try hard to keep the fight going uh, yeah. against fascism yeah. uh, for a long period. Yeah. So, so, Sean, I mean, I know there's a, a whole load of Spaniards went and fought for, for Nazi Germany as well. Um, there was a whole division of them, wasn't pretty much. And um, a, lot, a lot, yeah. But how many Spaniards fought for the Allies, do you reckon? So ballpark, I mean, not precisely. Are we talking, do you want to include the French as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. so at the end of the Spanish Civil War, you've got um, a half a million Spaniards, Spaniards who cross over the border into, into France. That's in the early 1939. It's called La Retirada, the, the, big, the, the big withdrawal. They all get into France. About 300,000 of those end up returning back to, to Spain, one way or another, yeah. all going to exile permanently. How many are going into France? This is across the Pyrenees, isn't it? Half, yeah, they're all going across into the Pyrenees. Yeah, half a million. That's about 300,000 end up... Sorry? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. It was a real shock to the French. Uh, the French interned all of them. That's right. Separated the families up, put all the males of the fighting age in specific camps. Mm-hmm. What, you know, really, we're looking around 220,000 men of a fighting age who are imprisoned, let's say, by the French, a lot of them end up um, having very little choice and become members of uh, labor battalions. So so we're actually straight away, uh, by the time we get to the end of 1939, you're probably looking at around 55,000 Spaniards who are in either labor battalions 
or who, who are actually in different battalions um, or labor companies, labor, labor groups, actually, they were called. Um, but actually, a lot of them are actually uh, joining the French Foreign Legion and the sp specific uh, volunteer um, um, regiments and battalions for foreigners that weren't part of the French Foreign Legion, but then later did become part of that. So you you know you you could add that into the into the into the mix straight away. Fifty five thousand. I mean that's that's three divisions plus, isn't it? It is, but um, but obviously that a lot of them are doing what we would call pioneer work. They're not necessarily fighting the fight. You're talking about three regiments formed specifically, or which which have four battalions each. So you know the, the old system as the, as the French used to have. Um, they're actually. Uh, fighting in France and they're on the Maginot line and things like that. Not all of those battalions get involved in the fighting, but you also get some of these um, uh, 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 companies that are um, involved, uh, these uh, labor companies that are involved in supporting the French. And actually at the end of um, 1939, the, the BEF decides that it needs to have a larger labor force to support the BEF. And that's where you get the first, the setting up of the first labor company supporting the BEF. That's 185 Spanish Labor Company. They're brought in straight into, into the BEF um, and they're formed fully, uh, formally in January 1940. So they're, they're really the first Spaniards to join the British Army. I've got to say, I had no idea. Did you, Al? No. No. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great story. I mean, sadly, a lot of those Spaniards don't end up with the British after Dunkirk and after the evacuation of France. Um, but a lot of the Spaniards end up joining the British Army a bit after that, after other parts of the French um, a kind of war machine start to slightly fall apart. And of course, you've got the big story of the, the Spanish Maquis, um, uh, the Maquis made, being made up of loads of Spaniards, especially in the bottom third of um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of, of, of France. I mean, Robert Gildea has written extensively on it. It's really worth, um, Fighters in the Shadows, really worth reading stuff like that because it really puts yeah, no, no. myths. There are, there, there are Spaniards, that, that, that site, the Maquis de Melin site, which is near where my in-laws have a place in the south of France. Right. There are Spaniards there killed in that, in that massacre. Yeah, uh, and they're they're, um, on the, they're on the roll with everybody else. And, you and, and ironically, there, there 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 is a story. Well, it's a true story. There is a Spaniard who ends up um, joining the SOE um, in North Africa, and he is used by the SOE. Does his training back in the UK, and he's parachuted into Foix and fights with a Spanish Maquis company to retake Foix and is awarded the military medal, and then he's sent to Burma. You know, um, so so you've got these these things coming all the way around. And one of the areas I'm looking at a lot more, at which I'm not going to have a chance to finish for my book, is is the whole SOE part in North Africa. You've got the SOE OSS doing a whole load of really really interesting operations behind enemy lines in Tunisia, Algeria, to a certain extent Morocco, um, and they are they are going into the uh, concentration camps where a lot of these Spanish Republicans have been held. A lot of them have led uh, large units, battalions, regiments, even um, brigades. Or, or are, are well known for their terrorist kind of uh, guerrilla tactics from the Spanish Civil War. And they're brought in and made part of the SOE, uh, albeit for a short period. Um, they've signed on to the books of the Pioneer Corps. They disappear. They're not actually on a nominal role. I found out on the, for example, on the Pioneer Corps nominal role, there are two whole companies 
what that exists, the numbers are allocated, but there are no names next to them. Um, and these companies were, you know, not all Spaniards. You, you're talking about other, you know, Jew, Jewish um, uh, individuals. You've got lots of other kind of anarchist, uh, old, uh, uh, old members of the international brigades. But then that, that's 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 kind of a, another story in itself. But yeah. then bringing the Spaniards in, what you have is you've got a load of Spaniards who are in the 13th Half Brigade who fight in Norway. And a lot of the Spaniards who'd signed up and volunteered after January 1939, who had been interned in these camps, they join the, the, the brigade, end up in North Africa, they're trained and, as mountain troops to potentially go to Finland, they end up in Norway, they, uh, they go to Norway, at Narvik. at Narvik, and that's when the French go, blimey, these guys, these guys really know what they're doing, you know. Can um, I also say something to get here, is actually, those guys had really, really, really cool kit. Because I always thought that the, the French uniforms were rubbish. They just looked awful. They were just like sort of khaki version of the First World War blues. And they, they just looked so pants in 1940. But the French Foreign Legion and those guys who went, those mountain troops who went up to Norvig, they yeah. had literally the best kit. They had these really cool smocks. They had fantastic boots. Yeah. And they had really groovy kind of sort of big berets. They were almost like tam Well, the, the Chateau-Halbain still do, obviously, in the French army. Um, they still they, have the kind of omelette head. A good look. It really was a good yeah, look. Yeah, yeah, very much so. They had, they, had lot of, they had much more modern um, uh, small arms, light machine guns and all this kind of stuff. And they just... It just proves that the French could do it when they really put their mind to it. They, they, they could be up to date if they want to. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's after Narvik that these Spaniards, there's, there's, a, there's over 300 Spaniards in that brigade that have signed up. They end up going back to France briefly, then they end up in the UK and they're held in Trenton Park. And basically they have a sit-down protest when um, uh, de Gaulle visits them in Trenton Park and then they're put into Stafford Prison. Um, by the French, the British authorities realise, you know, you know, these guys are, you know, they're pretty harmless. So that they they leave their cells open, and then the French decide that they're going to embark. A lot of the French Foreign Legion decided not to side with uh, with uh, de Gaulle. So a lot of them leave and they go to North Africa and they said, right, the Spaniards they're coming with us. So the Spaniards are then put on a train. They're sent <laughs> to Bristol at Avonmouth, and they have another confrontation at Avonmouth when they get off the train. And I've been told by some of the families of the, the I've, I've interviewed over 40 families on this. Um, some of these religionaires literally had their weapons and there was a standoff and they were willing to fight to yeah. not be embarked because they knew that they were then either going to go in prison or be sent back to Spain. And of course, a lot of these people didn't want to be. So what then happens is, is that the French ring up um, the headquarters of the French arm, army in London that was in charge of the people who come back from France, not de Gaulle, other people. When and they are told they are told to shoot one out of every three pour pour encourager les autres. Jesus. And then what happens then is the British authorities then step in and they take these three hundred Spaniards to one side and they say, right, we're going to sign you one. Some of the Spaniards don't sign up for for the French um, um, for the British Army. They say, well, we'll work in a factory, an arms factory, and quite a lot of them end up in Birmingham um, working in arms factories in the Midlands. But then you then get the setting up of the number one Spanish company. And we can talk, uh, giving you an example of a Spanish number one yeah, company. Yeah, keep talking. I'm, I'm just yeah, a guy, a guy called um, Esteban Molina. Esteban Molina, he's, um, uh, he's a, uh, uh, a, mem a member of, of the French Royal Legion. He comes to, comes to Britain. And he is actually probably heard of Alfred Molina, the famous uh, uh, Anglo-American actor. Well, that's his father. 
um, wow. Esteban Molina um, is one of these members of the Spanish number one company. But what happens in December 1940 is that SOE realizes that there could be a potential invasion of, um, uh, of uh, the uh, Iberian Peninsula by the Germans. Yeah. And they decide that they need to do some operations, potential so, operations behind enemy lines. So, Sean, is there like... Uh, um is there because because I think we've we uh, we've talked to the podcast before about how you know Jewish German exiles basically they get they get treated as um, enemy aliens they get yeah. processed and eventually allowed back into the Pioneer Corps but the difference yeah. here is you've people who are really really experienced at fighting the Germans I mean it's one of the one of the things that gets said about the, the, the Spanish Civil War is is the the Germans get to try stuff out they rehearse there they bring their yeah. bring their experience to bear particularly in Poland and often in uh, and in France yeah and uh, although we never talk although what's interesting is no one ever talks about how the Russians bring their experience of Spain to, to bear in the Second World War because after all the Red Army's in the middle of a great big purge while this is all going on anyway exactly yeah but, but, but do the British do the British because it sounds like you're saying that someone goes, hang on a minute, these guys are probably going to be quite useful. Yeah, well, at the time, I think, it was a, I think, yeah, I think it was a needs must. I think the, what you've got to remember is a lot of these Spaniards were still regarded as Reds. There was still a lot of, yeah. uh, of, of caution from the British side, especially seeing as they had a lot of the International Brigade members coming back. And there was that whole business of the International Brigade members being on specific, specific, specific watch lists and things yeah. like that. Yeah. You've got people like Winteringham who ends up setting up a special element of the of the Home Guard and being somebody who's you know who's who's quite you know who's who's quite influential in that. So the SOE decides to take up to 140. It ends up training 148 Spaniards in various forms through the SOE training. Out of those 148, 23 are still kept on the uh, on the SOE books. Alfred Molina is one of those, and he ends up. I haven't got it. I haven't been able to get hold of his file yet from the National Archives, but he ends up being one of those 23 that's kept on the books and is in operations behind enemy lines, working with the SOE in 1944. So yeah, yeah um, but a lot of these guys end up going back to the to the number one Spanish company. At every opportunity, they try to fly the Spanish Republican flag and they end up um, using this chateau as their headquarters, the company. It gets reinforced by more Spaniards who come from North Africa yeah. in 1944. The company ends up being joined together, again, with those who've been in the SOE. They get trained in forestry and end up landing in August 1944. They were going to land earlier, but with the second Mulvey Harbour not, not being uh, a, a, available, they come in a later way. They then get moved pretty quickly into the Ardennes and they end up doing forestry work. They're not in the front line as a company, yeah. but, but obviously, you know, uh, so they're the first unit as such. And, um, you know, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, we're talking 300 plus uh, men in that company. The majority of that company end up staying in Britain at the end of the war. Right. And, and the backbone of the uh, Spanish ex-servicemen's uh, association, which is set up in the late 50s, comes from the number one Spanish company members. But actually, around the same time as the, um, as the Spanish number one company, we also have Spaniards crossing over the desert from Syria into Palestine and Egypt and joining the British army in the Middle East. And there are 63 Spaniards who do this that I've recorded, I've managed to track down. And I've got to thank a couple of families for this, just like I've got to thank the families from the number one Spanish company 
there's there's a guy specifically from the in the to do with the Middle East, a guy called Tony Fajardo. His father was in in the Middle East, and these 63 soldiers end up um, getting across. About 50, 55 of them steal two trucks, cross over the border. Tony Fajardo's father, whose name, um, who's, who, uh, who, Joaquin Fajardo, he ends up being one of the people that has a little bit of 50 cuffs on the border, and they manage to then open the barrier and drive through and then get to uh, meet up with the British. But then there are two small groups, and I managed to track down um, uh, the families of members of those two small groups. They actually walk, one, of the, one group walks into Jordan, and the other group walks into Palestine from Syria on foot. We're talking six, eight days. I think one, one, one group six days, one group eight days. No water, no nothing. Yeah. Two groups of about four or five individuals. One of those individuals is a guy called Francisco Geronimo. His story, you, you can't make it up. So he joins one of these, one of these volunteer marching battalions, um, these bataillons de marche, the volontaires étrangères in the French army after being interned in one of these camps. And he then gets sent to Syria and what happens is, is that um, uh, he then crosses over and he joins the British Army. And initially, why does he join? Um, uh, because they, they, they after after the um, after the um, uh, uh, surrender of the French to the Germans, there was a huge fear from the Spanish pe- Spanish members of the French Foreign Legion in Syria and the Polish that they were going to be taken prisoner and you know, or sent back to Spain or whatever it might be. Um, so a lot of the Spaniards tried to escape. A lot of them were incarcerated, but this small group managed to escape. So he, he did he feel um, did he feel sort of compelled that it was the right thing to do? Definitely, yeah. I mean, they wanted to continue the fight. As far as they were concerned, don't forget when they signed up for the for the French army. If you were in the French Foreign Legion, you signed up for five years. If you were in the one of the volunteer units the, of the foreigners, you signed up for the duration de la guerre. So basically, what you were doing. As far as they were concerned, the war was over. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they had every right to leave. Uh, yeah, obviously, right. a lot of them were stopped from doing that. So what ended up happening was that they arrive and they all get put on the books of the Queen's Royal Regiment, West Surrey. Why that regiment? I don't know. It, they, they, it, they're just taken on. They want to sign on to the British Army. That is the battalion that they're put into, the 1st, 5th Battalion, serving out in the Middle East at the time. But shortly after, George Young uh, is told to form the Middle East Commandos. So they then get put into one of the companies in 50 Middle East Commando, and they take up 50% of a company in 50 Middle East Commando, hence why they have this funny Tammy Shanta and all that. So they end up then forming part of this battalion, uh, forming a, a part of uh, um, 50 Middle East Commando, and then they go on various operations after, after some training, and they end up in Crete um, uh, in 19, in 19, uh, late 1940. But then they go to Crete, as you know, you, you covered Crete the other week. Yeah. Um, uh, but you're probably aware the lay force element, by then they're no longer 50 Middle East Commander, they're D, yeah. D Battalion of the lay force. And the D Battalion ends up being the rear guard of the rear guard. And the company that it has the Spaniards in is B Company of B Battalion. And that is the company that ends up being the company that's left behind on the first night. So half of that company is taken POW either that night or later on when the um, surrender is taken. But the great story about Geronimo, Frank Williams, is that he manages to um, uh, escape, evade, escape and evade in Crete for 11 months. 
Bloody hell. And there are loads and loads of stories. Um, you know, there's one story of when the Germans come into one of these houses and he manages to um, jump through a window. He misses the window slightly, smacks his head, part, knocks himself out in the courtyard behind, but the Germans never go into the courtyard. He is then one of several that are picked up in an SOE uh, operation. Uh, one of these SOE sailing boats is brought in and he's brought back, arrives in Egypt. And shortly after that, he then ends up become a member of one special service regiment and he joins second SAS. Yeah. And Geronimo is then involved in operations in France. He's, he's, uh, he's on Op Dunhill, he's on Op Trueform. Um, and it's around that period that he changes his name from Francisco Geronimo to, to Frank Williams. He actually wanted to be called Francis Drake, but they <laughs> thought it might be a bad idea I tracked down 10 Spaniards who were in the SAS, um, in, mostly in second SAS, or all of them, all of those, eight, eight in, in second SAS, and about six in third and four SAS who were the French SAS. So we've got Spaniards playing their part and doing something pretty impressive um, during, you know, during but that Why he wanted to be called Frank Williams? Because he wanted to be called uh, uh, Francis Drake, no, no, but uh, why Frank, Frank, because it sounds like Francisco, Francisco, and Williams, because it was a word that was easy to pronounce. But why not? Spaniard. Williams, sorry? Why, why didn't he want to stick with Geronimo? Because they all changed their names because of the commando order, etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, members of the SAS. Now, there was one member who didn't do that, um, and I'll talk about him in a second, a, a bit later on. But Francisco Geronimo ends up also being on Optombola. He's one of the one of three Spaniards who are on Optombola in the north of Italy, and I'm sure you're aware of that operation. I'll cover that in a little bit more detail. He's demor he, he then ends up being part of the SAS operation in Norway as well at the end of the war. And then he's demobbed in early 1946 and he marries um, uh, Laura Garcia, um, who is a Basque refugee child. You're probably aware, 4,000 refugee children are evacuated from the Basque country in 1937 um, due, to, due to support from Britain. Uh, and a lot of Basque refugee children are evacuated, but 4,000 go to Britain. About four or 500 of them end up staying in Britain at the beginning of the war because of one reason or another. And um, uh, Laura Garcia is one of those who stays. Um, Francisco Geronimo meets her at the end of the war, they get married and they move to South Wales and that's where they end up. So Williams, South Wales kind of fits. Um, and ironically, he then lives only a few doors down from the next person I want to talk to you about, which, who's a guy called Ángel Camarena. Now, Ángel Camarena, his story is another amazing story as well. He's born in Madrid. He's a free spirit. His family say he was a free spirit. He used to write poetry. He, he was really, really a, a strong supporter of the Spanish Republic that was um, uh, uh, formed in the early 1930s. But he decides to join the Spanish army in 1935. So before the Spanish Civil War kicks off. Right. And he's serving in the Canary Islands. And he is in the pool of chauffeurs. Now, I haven't been able to prove it yet, but his family say that he even drove Franco himself. <laughs> Amazing. 
And the, the family story is, is that as he was waiting for Franco, he would swing Franco's daughter on the swing in the garden. What is, what is certain, though, is that he, in, just after the Spanish Civil War is declared and um, uh, Franco then rises to power later on that year, um, he is condemned to death by firing squad. He is one of 21 prisoners who is condemned to death. Only three of those 21 survive. And the reason why they survive is because they're put on the prison, floating prison ship outside of the Canaries. And as they are being going to be shot, he jumps into the water. He is rescued by a British ship that passes by. God. But sadly, he's handed over back to the Spanish authorities on the proviso he doesn't get shot. So he is then imprisoned from 1936 to 1941. He's put in a concentration camp in Morocco. In 1941, um, uh, Franco uh, had the first pardon. And what basically happens is, is that he's released. He goes back to Spain. He ends up not really liking Spain anymore, obviously, for, for yeah. obvious reasons. He then hears about Operation Torch. He he crosses over to Algeria, he joins the Pioneer Corps, and then he goes to Philippeville and is selected for SAS training and joins 2nd SAS. He then ends up settling down in the UK, and he is another person who changes his name. He changes his name to Alan Cooper. No, Alan. that's so wrong. He's called Angel Camarina. Changes his name to you know Alan Cooper. Yeah. Name ever. What if I was called Angel? Uh, Angel. What do you think? Uh, how, yeah. how do you pronounce I, it? Angel. Angel. I just say my name is Angel. He marries and he marries another Basque refugee child. Wow. Anyway, this photo. Oh, I, cannot believe, I cannot believe you're called Angel Camarina and you change it. Alan <laughs> <laughs> Cooper, do you mind? And he ends up settling down in South Wales and just round the corner from uh, from uh, from from uh, Frank Williams. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism. Hello, we have ways, listeners. We have a mad idea that you might just be interested in Anglo-German relations through history to the present. If so, do please give our new podcast a listen. It's called Tommy's and Jerry's, featuring me, Oliver Moody, a Brit based in Berlin, and Katja Hoyer, a German historian living in the UK. Here's a brief taster. Break out the beach towels and bag the best spot. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, a new podcast in which we plan to put the Realpolitik and the Eröffnungsdiskussionsorgien into the world of podcasting. Each week we'll discuss the past and present of Anglo-German relations. What makes us different and what makes us sometimes painfully similar. There's a very famous picture of Thatcher driving along in a Challenger tank with a British flag flying and she's got her goggles on and her scarf she looks like the absolute warrior queen almost like a britannia style nationalistic figure but when you look at the zoomed out version of that photo it was actually taken on a british military base in west germany and right next to her there's cole trundling along on his own um, <laughs> leopard 2 german battle tank with a german flag and it was clearly some effort to try and give them like a fun day out together and all that it's remembered for is just, just this symbol of british nationalism <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's probably exactly how she would have liked it as well. <laughs> Things have got so bad that there's this paper that, that turned up showing um, that Cole had made a formal request not to talk to Thatcher anymore um, and to talk to um, the Foreign Secretary, Douglas Hurd, instead. And Thatcher had just scribbled on it in massive capital letter handwriting, No! <laughs> Because they made no effort to hide that either. Thatcher in particular was kind of openly hostile. You see that on all of the photographs. I don't think they ever had as bad a relationship as people made it out to be, to be honest, Boris Johnson and and Angela Merkel. You don't see Boris (laughs) slapping Angie on the back, but you do get the sense from the last visit that there was a genuine effort. Uh, I'm not so sure. I've been been told in Berlin that um, actually it's terrible. It's really, really bad. And um, she can't stand him. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Tommy's and Jerry's. Search for Tommy's and Jerry's wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. My next one to talk about is, is probably the most experienced out of all of the SAS members. And this is a guy called Rafael Ramos. Now, Rafael Ramos, he so has, He doesn't change his name. He doesn't. He's the only one who doesn't. Good. Now, Rafael Ramos, he's in the top right of this photo. This is taken at Ivanhoe at the end of the uh, Second World War, where, um, where Second SAS were based before they got disbanded. He was the one with the largest experience, five operational jumps in the SAS. Wow. He had, uh, he was on Dunhill, he was on Trueform, he was on Gallia, and he was also on Tombola. He was born in Catalonia, brought up in Madrid. His father was a, has his own print business, um, heavily involved in, in the print business. He was heavily politicized, um, fought in the Republican army, was taken prisoner uh, during the Battle of the Ebro, managed to escape into France, um, was interned, Joined the French Foreign Legion late, uh, late 39, early 40, still don't really know exactly when. Ends up in North Africa, mostly because some of the French Foreign Legion or foreign um, battalions were, were sent to kind of penal colonies in North Africa by Vichy because they didn't trust them. Here he is again, bottom right-hand corner. Uh, you can see him with his arm over another guy there. Um, uh, he's got his own arm over a guy called Enrique Boganim, Catalan, um, again, another member of Second SAS. And bottom right-hand corner, you'll see a guy called Juan Torrents. Juan Torrents, um, he, he uh, uh, sorry, Boganim changed his name to Shaw, and Juan Torrents um, changed his name, or did he change his name to? Um, his, his son's called Cliff. I'll come back to me anyway. Um, his son is um, his son is an artist. Used to live in Glasgow. Now now lives in Galicia in Spain. But they all go through parachute training uh, like he did. Um, this is early 1944. Once the the SAS is formally brought together, these the, the guy the most of the guys you see in this in this photo here are mem- foreign members of Second SAS. But they're um, wearing a Pararege badge. Are they wearing maroon? I know, it's weird, isn't it? And I still don't really understand why. I mean, that some of them had already had already been on operations um, and, and had already done stuff in, in North Africa and in Italy. Yeah. But I don't know why. Maybe I, I really don't know. Because, I really one, don't of the, know. because uh, one of the, I mean, uh, to be tangential, one of the earlier, uh, one of the um, early people involved in setting up British Airborne Forces was, was Peter Kemp, of course, yeah. who, who was a... a, a, a 
<laughs> um, comes from the other side of the tracks in this story, in that he was a British, very a, a royalist, a conservative, and who um, had a proper red red panic on, and who went to fight for the nationalists um, yeah. in the Spanish Civil War. And then yeah. when the when the war ends, he's, he's, he's injured at the end of the war. He comes back to Britain, and he's immediately recruited for sort of um, embryonic SOE stuff, yeah. and then ends up at the commando training school teaching people so i mean their their paths must have crossed that they did and 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 you've got you've actually got peter kemp and you've got phil phil um kim philby as well yeah in film in a minute and ian fleming they're all involved with the spaniards which is quite impressive really but peter kemp is part of an um i was talking about um um uh esteban molina earlier well peter the 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 spaniards who were trained by the soe were going to be called sconces and what happened was was that there was a group of British officers who had Spanish as their language, either because they were expats or whatever. Peter Kemp was one of them. And they were called relators. And there was a point in 1942, 1943, when some of these individuals were going to be joined together and be sent to Spain to stop the Germans if they were going to invade. Yeah. And, uh, and funnily enough, Peter Kemp was one of them. And um, what happened was, was that he was going to be put, potentially put in charge of a group of eight of these sconces from the number one Spanish. Spanish company, if it came to it, and I don't think he would have lasted very long. No, they didn't. Uh, obviously, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't they found out who he was because he was in the Requetes, you know, yeah. the, uh, the Navarre, Navarre kind of Red Beret types, and then he was in the French Spanish Foreign Legion. So yeah, they, they, I think they would have. He wouldn't have lasted very long. They'd have rung his yeah. back, wouldn't they? They'd have, they'd have yeah. asked him for his bona yeah. Fridays, and they wouldn't Kim, have. Had Kim Philby, Kim Philby ended up. You know, he ended up um, uh, being one of the instructors instructing and writing reports on the Spaniards as well. And Ian Fleming was one of the ones who wrote some of the operational orders that the Spaniards would have been involved with. So, you know, there's a huge link there. Um, and there's a, there's a lot more there, as I said before, about the SOE. Yeah. So anyway, so Tombola, just, just to finish with Rafael Ramos, though, Rafael Ra- uh, um, Ralph, as he was called, they called him Ralph. Right. Um, but, but basically, he is part of Optombola. Roy Ferran, you're aware of Optombola, incredible operation, dreamt up by Roy Ferran. Um, uh, uh, Francisco Jerónimo and another Spaniard, Basque actually, called Justo Valerdi, uh, who was called Robert Bruce, he ends up, I know, I know James, um, he and they both end up They're both in the same group that parachutes in with Roy Ferran. Roy Ferran, then, as you know, with, with, with Tombola, he ends up coming up with this amazing idea to fight behind the enemy lines, and they're going to attack, one of the parts of it is to attack the 51st German Corps headquarters, Nalbinair. He parachutes in a, uh, a, 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 a Piper, um, uh, who parachutes in specially, and that's mostly so that they, there's no reprisals on the local community. Um, and obviously you've got the SAS in, you've got partisans, you've got Russians, you've got spies, SOE, everything. Roy Franz brings this amazing group together. And in the middle of that are three Spaniards. And Rafael Ramos is key when it comes to fighting in the, in the villa because he goes in, his citation states that he killed at least six Germans single-handed. He then casifacts out um, the captain, the intelligence officer who was injured, Kazavacked him out, then went back into the building again to keep on fighting, and for which he was awarded the military medal. Amazing. So, you know, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Rafael Ramos, he went to, a, at the end of the war, he married uh, a Czech woman who had escaped the, the, um, 
uh, Czechoslovakia with the help from a, a ballerina or something got back to the UK got to the UK they got married they had a daughter a few day, a few years later 1947 Rafael Ramos goes to an SAS reunion in London meets Ernest Bevan and gets given a union card and he ends up get going into the newspaper print business and he ends up being um, working uh, um, in, in a newspaper in Exeter and then he ends up moving to Mac to Birmingham Quite a few Spaniards ended up in Birmingham, as well as London. He ends up in Birmingham. And then sadly, he, he, he becomes very ill and he dies at the age of 42 and dies in 1961. Very sad story. He, for me, he is, he, is, he is the hero. I mean, they're all heroes in my eyes, but he sticks out. He really does. Because not only was, was he, you know, not only did he, get, did he do what he did, but he was also an amazing individual as well. Everybody talks about... He's meek and mild and kind. Although even when he was in the hospital, you know, when he was dying, he was asking people if they needed things and he was helping them. And, you know, I just think that, that story is amazing. He becomes a naturalized Brit as well. A lot, of the, a lot of the Spaniards became naturalized Brits. So, yeah, so it's an amazing story. One story about him is when they're doing their SAS training in Scotland, he decides he's going to test out his Tommy gun and he shoots up a toilet block because then nobody else can use it apart from him. <laughs> anyway, I think he had a few beers as well. <laughs> I sympathise. Uh, I like my own bog as well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so um, and um, moving on, um, then we've got basically got we've got um, a couple of stories of Basques, Basque young Basques. We've got a guy called Lucio Salquillo Echevarria. I don't have any photos of him. He's a guy that is one of those Basque refugee children. He moves to Spain from Spain in 1937. He stays in Britain. He volunteers, um, at, and basically in 1942 uh, he becomes uh, he volunteers to join the British Army. Goes into the Rimi. Then he's transferred to the Army Air Corps, and then he volunteers to go into the Parachute Regiment, and he joins the 12th um, Yorkshire Parachutes Battalion, and he drops into D-Day. Um, and sadly, he's killed in Breville in the big counterattack yeah. on the 12th of June. And he dies the following day. So basically, he died on this day yesterday. Um, and he, he's buried there. Um, and he, you know, he was only 21, you know, but he volunteered, even though he was, uh, you know, a, a refugee child. He'd settled in. Um, he had a brother who, um, who had uh, moved to the Midlands. He, he was based in Scarborough. The, 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 the Basque refugee children were, 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 were moved in penny pack, were put in penny packets around Britain because obviously they couldn't keep them all in one place. Yeah. So they were split up. Um, so that's, that's a bit of sats. And he's, he's, he's buried in um, Hermanville, Hermanville Cemetery in, in, yeah. uh, in Normandy. And, you know, uh, a sad story, but, you know, a, a brave lad. He was one of the, I think they had... Uh, hundreds wounded in action on the 12th. Uh, he was one of those wounded in action and obviously died of his wounds falling down. They, they even lost their CO on that yeah, day. More than, yeah, it's more than that. It's something like, I, I mean, uh, it, it's more than 100, isn't it? And yeah, and the colonel's killed. And Yeah, no, I think other ranks. I'm talking other ranks. Um, yeah. That's what the, diary, the, 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 the war diary says. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's one of those. And I haven't been able to track a family. This guy here, he is Joe Irala, Jose Maria Irala. Jose Maria, another Basque refugee child. He's from Bilbao. He moves to Dudley, of all places, but there you go. Another industrial city, so he probably felt at home a bit. He volunteers in 1943. He's put into the Royal Armoured Corps. 
and then he joins uh, the first airborne recce squadron. Yeah. And he does his parachute training. Um, next photo shows a group photo of his section and his, tro uh, his troop there. He's in 10 section, 10 troop. Um, he's parachuted into Arnhem on the 17th of September. A uh, bit of a bit of a mess. Um, they land. He meets up with his jeep. They jump into his jeep. He meets up with his his section officer, a guy called John Marshall. <clears throat> John Marshall. They're really close. Um, John Marshall has a lot to say about Joey Ridala after he dies, and sadly, Joey Ridala is another person who's killed in action. They they drop into uh, into their DZ. They, they they then get separated from the rest of the squadron and end up going in totally the opposite direction but then managed to return and get to the rest of, of, of the squadron. Um, and by, and, and, and I, I'm not an expert on, on Arnhem, but, um, but by the 20th of September, um, they're at the, the Harstein hotel yeah. uh, next to the uh, divisional headquarters. And there's a, a self-propelled gun that's discovered is on its way. They all jump into their Jeeps. As he's jumping into his Jeep, he gets shot uh, in, in the stomach and, uh, and, the, and the lower chest. Uh, he is heavily wounded. He's taken to the re uh, regiment lay post. Then he's moved to um, St. Elizabeth Hospital. Yeah. And he dies of his wounds on the 20th of uh, September. Yeah. Sad. But I mean, um, Marshall, who was very close to him, said that basically he was a wonderful soldier. He, uh, he was highly intelligent and immensely brave and uh, with the capacity for giving enormous loyalty. So, you know, you know, and supposedly, and I haven't been able to prove this, but supposedly uh, Joey Dalla also lost a brother in the Spanish Civil War, an older brother. Gosh. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and this was the case, you know, you've got to remember all these Spaniards who ended up in the British Army, they'd gone through a lot. You know, you've got to remember a lot of them were born during the period of the, uh, of, of the First World War. Uh, they, when Spain was neutral, they went through a dictatorship in the 1920s under José Antonio Primo de Rivera. They then saw the Republic come in the early 1930s. They saw the monarchy uh, deposed, the setting up of a, of, a, of a Republic, the Spanish Civil War, which they then fought. Then they were forced to go into France. Then they were interned by the French. Then they volunteered to join French forces. Some of them weren't demobbed from the British Army until 1946 or 47. I've managed to track... It's like Alan First ought to write a novel about this, don't you think? It is. Well, to be, to be fair, there is a novel written by one of the Spaniards who was a very heavily politicised guy. He was a personal friend of George Orwell. Oh. And, um, uh, and I've got some of his memoirs. His niece has managed to pass me some of his memoirs, and that's helped me a lot with the book. You talk, about, really you talk about that sequence of events, though, uh, uh, Sean. You know, no wonder people come out the other end anarchists or, or radical communists, yeah. or, yeah. you know, because, it, because it's all... That you know, it's all seismic and it's all happening in a great yeah. big jumble and a tumble. All it in is, show, isn't it? It is. And 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 this photo you can see here. This is the Spanish Ex Servicemen's uh, Association, uh, uh, founded in the late fifties, formally founded in nineteen sixty. When when were people able to finally go home then? After Franco died. God, nineteen seventy-five. Right. Um, quite a lot of them. Um, sorry. That's absolutely incredible, isn't it? I yeah. mean, if you forget Franco was around for such a long time. Oh, uh, yeah, it's not unlike uh, the Poles who couldn't go back as well. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, it's, it's very similar. It's a very similar situation. Um, obviously, we're talking... I've, I've, I've tracked down 908 Spaniards. 
I reckon there are around 1,200 in total when you add in all the waste and strays, SOE and all of that. And, I'm, and I've tracked down individuals. So, for example, I've tracked down another Spaniard who was in the in the second battalion of the guards in Arnhem, going the other way. Yeah. He, he was KIA. Um, I've tracked down a medic. I've tracked down a, a member of one of the engineer um, companies on D-Day who was wounded in action. Some of the members of the uh, 50 Middle East Commando who were in Crete who got away, they ended up rejoining um, rejoining um, the uh, Queen's Royal Regiment uh, uh, West Surrey and ended up in Italy and ended up on D-Day. Um, uh, you know, uh, there was another Spaniard who ended up getting a military medal um, uh, crossing the Volturno in Italy in 1943. So there's loads of these little individuals. Yeah. You know, so what happened to these down. guys? Sort of found themselves on the wrong side of the Pyrenees and sort of, you know, crewing around Europe and fighting for the British. I mean, what happened to all their families? Well, that's another good story. A lot, a lot of them had no choice and had to start all over again. Um, yeah, no, but they, them, you know. You well, know, some of them were incarcerated. Some of them were incarcerated. Some of them were just in exile uh, in other places, but a lot of them ended up in Spain and, and they just had to, you know, they had to try and communicate as best they could through the Red Cross or whatever it might be during the war. And then at the end of the war, they were able to, normally through a third party, sometimes they were able to talk, whatever. A lot of these Spanish families that were from well-known anarchists were are under a watch list. Yeah. Or, uh, some members of their family were still in prison, you know. All right. But what about, you know, for example, what about Angel Camarena, Alan Cooper's? Angel Camarena. Uh, yeah. What about, about his family? Well, some of them are in prison. He didn't see them until 1975. Well, he, he did see some of them after he came out of I came out of prison in 1941, and he saw them then. But no, you're right. Yeah, he, he you know he didn't he didn't go out. It's only five years in. Yeah, some cases. Yeah, yes, yeah. you know, just the way it is. So it's an amazing story. Needs to be told. Um, you know, having lived in Spain under the Franco regime, having seen the the, the uh, transition to democracy, but. But realizing, you know, uh, um, five years ago when I first started looking at this, I came across this book. It's called Churchill Spaniards. It's written by a Spanish academic in the 1980s. And I just went, and, th and this, this is about Spaniards. And I guess you, this is, you recognize this photo, James. Um, this is about Spaniards who fought in the British armed forces. I decided just to do Spaniards in the British Army. But actually, uh, you know, quite a quite quite a huge story, and it, it's never ending. There's going to be so much more to find. Um, well, I'm in, absolutely well. I'm jiggered. I had no idea. Sure. I've got around, actually. Um, Ch Chaz got touching me a little bit earlier, um, and he was saying they're um, talking about the Cuban revolutionary links with the clerks, Free French Armored Division. Yeah. Um, that that um, well then became an, an army, didn't it? In um, in in northern France. Uh, and he says, you might not know, and this is Chaz. He says, my father was a member of the urban guerrillas during the revolution in Cuba. I met one of them, met one of these people that had fought for, for, for the French, Carlos Gutierrez Manoyo. He was killed along with 50 of his fellow assault members against the presidential palace in Havana. Unfortunately, Spanish Republican always gets equated with communist and nothing could be further from the truth. Spanish Republicans came of all stripes and creeds. Calling them radical Marxists has been a way to ameliorate the West guilt for accommodating the Franco regime, particularly when Spain was needed in NATO. And Carlos yeah. Gutierrez Magnolia was 33 years old when he was killed by Batista's palace guards and rapid brigades surrounding the presidential palace in 1957 Havana. He had fought in North Africa, the Italian campaign, and was part of Leclerc's drive into Paris. A man who braved the 20th century's worst hosts and survived was killed by a half-assed two-bit Caudillo's guard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
the, 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 a lot of the Spaniards at the end of the Second World War did feel let down by Britain. They really did, because they thought Franco would be next. But obviously, as, as you know, Franco's outer uh, inner circle was being paid off by the British. Um, we were playing a bit of a double jeopardy. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of these Spaniards who fought in the British Army ended up leaving and going to Mexico and other places. A lot of them stayed, and out of those who stayed, a lot of them became British, and a lot of them didn't. Some of these Spaniards kept their Spanish passports or kept their Spanish nationality. Their children and their grandchildren became British, obviously. Um, but a, a lot of them, I mean, there's one example from the 50 Middle East Commando, a guy um, called Manuel Barroso. Manuel Barroso, he was a mafiosi um, uh, after the Spanish Civil War, fought the Spanish Civil War, got over to Paris, joined 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 a little kind of mafia, got into got into um, uh, being a bit of a bouncer with prostitution and all that. His only option when the Second World War broke out was to join the French Foreign Legion. He joined the French Foreign Legion. He ended up in Syria. He joined the 50 Middle East Command. He was taking POW, came to Britain. All those who were taking POW from the 50 Middle East Commando came to Britain. They'd never been to Britain, but they were all, become, they all were given um, uh, naturalization. He decided not to get a, a British passport, but then he ended up in a in a Maltese mafia in the East End in London, and he, and he ended up being in prison a few times. And I've spoken to his son Pierre, and you know, it's, the, these stories are incredible. You know, some of them, want, you know, some of them loved being in the military. Some of them wanted to do it because of the ideals. Some of them did it because they had no choice, and a lot of them knew that they had to start from scratch. You know, there's another guy from the Spanish Number One Company. He got into the carpentry a lot because of all the the, the wood woodwork they were doing. He ended up. Uh, working in a large sawmill in Scotland, settled down in Scotland. You know, so, you know, the, the stories are endless. I could carry on forever about them, but it's a story that needs to be told because it just makes... Well, I'm, it, absolutely, I'm absolutely ghost-smacked. I think it's fantastic. Sorry, I'm just going to put my jump on. Sure, it's absolute. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with Jim there. I, I, and what, what I think is, I think the thing, to, the, the thing it really... Uh, uh, the thing it really illustrates is that this is that the Second World War is part of a continuity of events rather than a yeah. rather than a thing that pops up off, off, off on its own. And in yeah. lots of ways, a lot of the a lot of the global tensions start to manifest themselves in Spain first, which is interesting given that Spain Spain's First World War, you know, uh, isn't isn't like Germany's or yeah. like France's. You know, it's sort of it's not really happened. It's bypassed. Yeah. It. And yet those those tensions feed into it because of the because the global global economy's buggered yeah. post First World War, and that that became sort of is a bit of a petri dish, yeah, for stuff, but not just not just military stuff, but ideals and yeah, very much politics, so. and then and also but also precursor of a lot of Cold War politics, like Chess pointed out that you've got you've got people being painted as communists because you've got to accommodate fascists later on. And all those sort of elisions and bends in the p political world that that follow the war. So the war, the war isn't a standalone event. It's in this, it's in this twentieth century continuity. And these people's lives yeah. illustrate that really well. Yeah, they they, 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 must, they very much do. I mean, I mean, one of you know, Spanish Civil War is absolutely fascinating. The problem is, is that all the books that have been written about them, they're either it's either Orwell or, or whatever, or some memoirs or Hemingway. Or it's kind of Paul Preston, which is, you know, obviously Paul Preston's completely magnificent and brilliant and all the rest of it, but it's also completely unreadable. I mean, it is, it's just... It's <laughs> well, literally, you they, they, do say, they, do, they do say that more books have been written about the Spanish Civil War than there have been days since the Spanish Civil War finished. Because, <laughs> you know, 
Well, um, I would just like someone to write one that just tells me what I want to know with lots of human drama, and I get the <laughs> rest of it. Because every time I've tried to read a book like Spanish Civil War, I fall asleep because it's so complicated. And, and it, it, sadly, it is. That's the problem. Um, um, but you know, but then you, you. The, I mean, one other thing that, that's quite interesting as well is also the fact that some of these Spaniards actually sold their secrets. So you've got a story of one of the guys who was trained by the sconces who ended up deciding, because he was quite desperate, I think he wanted to go and see his family and stuff, yeah. he decided going to the Spanish, he went to the Spanish embassy in London, which was Franco's, uh, Duque de Alba was the, the Duke of Alba, who was, you know, part of the uh, Spanish, um, Franco's entourage. And he sold his, he sold the SOE secrets. And then he was in, and then he got, he got arrested by the SIS and he then got interrogated and he, 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 he told them exactly what he'd said. And he was then incarcerated until the end of the war. So, you know, there's two sides. I mean, he's, he's a bit of a one-off, but actually you've got these amazing stories where, you know, personal story or, or, or something that's a little bit more kind of when you scratch the surface, there's more to it, you know. Um, I'm reading some of, the, some of the, the diaries and some of the personal accounts that I've been given by the families. It really helps to kind of understand a bit more about why they wanted to do it. Um, and some of these individuals like Agustin Raventura, he was very heavily politicized. He carried on... Um, he was part of the Spanish anarchist movement, uh, exiled Spanish anarchist movement. He was the UK representative for the Spanish anarchist uh, movement um, outside of Spain. Um, you know, and, and some of these people just wanted to keep it going. And, and he, you know, he, he was he was quite important to kind of keep that continuity in, in, in that understanding. And another interesting thing is, of course, is you get a lot of these exiled Spaniards from the end of the Spanish Civil War who arrived in Britain. And then you get all these guys who have been in the military and they don't meet up until after the war and they've got very different experiences. You know, in some ways, um, some of the military guys are far more used to being British than the ones who've been living in Britain because a lot of, ones, a lot of the ones who've been living in Britain are living in their little Spanish bubbles. You know, there was a Basque bubble and there was a Catalan bubble and all of that. That's not to say they weren't, you know, they weren't part of British society, but it's really interesting to see how that how those two groups meet up, especially after uh, after the Labour uh, government's brought in. Um, Agustin Roa Ventura makes representations to to uh, Labour MPs so that the Spaniards who are due to be sent back to Africa can stay in yeah. in Britain. You know, um, so th there's a lot there's a lot going on there. Yeah, Gosh. there's a lot going on there. That's the what they're talking about. Charles Tremblay. Charles Tremblay is good. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, no, that's what, that's a book worth reading. Started Anthony's book. I mean, Anthony's a mate of mine, and and you know, I think a lot of his books are fantastic. But quite Spanish Civil War one. Yeah. It was hard work. Yeah, no, not not for me that book. I'm afraid. But well, um, yeah, yeah, well, well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I mean, we, you know, there was talk of a rabbit hole at the start of the, uh, an hour ago. And we, I think, we have all completely um, fallen right down inside it, Alice in Wonderland style. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us. No Food thought for everyone. Yeah. Um, James, James, it's another. It's book really, really talk. interesting. I'm fascinated by this. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by Angel Alan Cooper. <laughs> Great film to be done on this, or a big sweeping novel, isn't there, or something? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, there's a few follow-up things. The, the book I'm writing is very much a book about giving uh, an overall view of the Spanish. Oh, okay. I think I think the book has given me a chance to open into lots of different avenues and I'll follow further down the line. Well, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us, Sean. Um, okay. I, I, I love it. Side, sidebar, uh, uh, 
uh, I've enjoyed that immensely. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoy Naples. I mean, of all the places yeah. to be in the summer. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It's, it's, I've got the air conditioning on, so uh, it's quite it's quite warm even in the evenings. And you know, it, people can find me on Twitter. If they want to ask me more yeah. questions, more more than happy. What are you on Twitter? Sean Scully, Sean F Scullion, or, and my hashtag is continuing the fights. So. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, just just uh, just find me on Twitter, and I'm happy for people to ask me questions. You know, the, the more I get the message out there, the better, really. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, um, as yeah. Chad says, this was great. Thank you. So there thank we you. go. <laughs>